Are you ready? Ready to release internal pain? To find confidence, clarity, and direction for your future? To live a life of meaning, fulfillment, and contribution? To trust your intuition again, but something's been holding you back? You've come to the right place. Welcome. I'm Ian Hawkins, the host and founder of the Grief Code podcast. Together, let's heal your unresolved or unknown grief by unlocking your grief code. As you tune in to each episode, you will receive insight into your own grief, how to eliminate it and what to do next. Before we start, I have one request. If any new insights or awareness land with you during this episode, please send me an email at info at ianhawkinscoaching.com and let me know what you found. I know the power of this work and I love to hear the impact these conversations have. Okay, let's get into it. Today's episode is another interview from the archives. This is an interview I did with Melody Vachel probably three years ago, I think. Might, might even be longer. And Melody is a caregiver. You could almost say she was born to be a caregiver. But then she also, over the course of a long time, realized just how much neglect she was putting into her, her own care. And it took some really traumatic experiences for her to come to that realization. Basically, life stopped her in her tracks, forcing her to receive care. And that was the inspiration for her to create a business, helping other caregivers, making sure they are rested, that their self-care is prioritized. It's a real roller coaster, this one, but there's also so many different words of wisdom if you do any sort of caring if you're someone who looks after people that you spend a lot of your time giving to other people and not taking enough time for yourself you're going to get so much out of this chat hi everyone this week i'm chatting with melody and i'm really excited about this i know there'll be plenty of people out there in who watch this who are carers either in official capacity or in their role as a parent or as a coach or whatever it is and they will really resonate with so much of Melody's story around being the person caring for everyone else and not actually receiving the care that she <laughs> needs. So I'm really looking forward to diving into this. Melody, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Nice to be here. Appreciate awesome. it. I appreciate you being here. So let's start with what you do now because this is this is the where the journey has taken you to, right? So you're a right. self-care consultant. Tell us a bit about that. Um, well, my goal as a self-care coach, wellness coach, self-care consultant is to um, help caregivers develop the practice of self-care and really integrate it into their daily life and really make it be a practice. Um, so that's pretty much my uh, my job title in a in a neat little bundle <laughs> it's not usually that neat but yes tell us about what self-care means for you because for everyone it's going to be different and i imagine there'd be people out there that know that there's elements of their self-care that they're not looking after they're not nurturing so yeah what does it mean to you um to me really i think the biggest thing i think about when i think about self-care is that it's not the thing you get to do after all the things you have to do. It needs to be part of your day-to-day -day life. It needs to be a practice. It needs to be integrated. It needs to be just those moments where you pause 
throughout the day to just give yourself breath and space. Um, it doesn't have to be a vacation. It doesn't have to be a massage or some exotic locale somewhere. It can be literally a little, little vacation right here in your own mind. So it's finding those moments and just building a practice of that so it's integrated. Yeah, I love that. And so often in our life, we put everyone before ourselves because we have certain responsibilities that we have to show up to and and they don't stop, whether it's a, a work that we're doing, whether that's working for someone else or in mm -hmm. a business, um, if we're parents, if we're children, if we're siblings, if we're, yeah, whatever it is, there's a role there that we need to play and often we're putting our own stuff, oh, I just get this other stuff done then I'll come back to me. So how, how do you make sure... <laughs> that you're prioritizing that in your busy world? You know, it's interesting. I, I've had a little epiphany in the last couple of weeks because I've been launched back into the role of caregiving because my sister had surgery. And so um, I've been helping her and I've been taking care of her a bit. And I realized when I was there after surgery that I immediately dove head first into the deep, deep pool of not pausing. And I just immediately launched back into, okay, from the beginning of the morning till the end of the night, we go, go, go. We do all the things. We juggle the balls. We make sure everybody's taken care of. After four days, I was like, oh my gosh, I am exhausted. I'm cranky. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it was like, oh, guess what? You are not doing all the things that you tell everybody else to do. So it was a good wake up call. It was a really good wake-up call. What I love about that is, and this is something that I talk about regularly, is that the very thing that we help people with is the thing that we have our challenge with as well. And the reason why we can help so many people is because we've lived through this challenge usually for most of our life, and we will probably continue to deal with challenges around this, obviously at differing levels, and the beauty of that is when whatever line of work you're in, when you can realize what it is that you really, where you bring the value and where you are valued, then you can take people on a journey that you've been on. And for those who are, you know, who like resonates, they can come with you and you can teach them the things that you've learned, the things that you're learning and the things that you will learn. Absolutely. It is such a continuum. It's, it's, we don't get to just stop at one point, which is the exciting thing about life, right? Yeah. You get to go along, 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 and sometimes you end up back where you started. <laughs> and then you get to do it better the second time. Yeah. So I think that's the important piece is like it's all about the journey and how yeah. we learn and how we bring others with us. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the fact that you are still challenged by this and still working on it just says to me, well, like what – better coach in this space would you need than you who just has so much knowledge and continues to pursue it so let's take it back to mm -hmm. to where you started that journey so you were a caregiver a speech pathologist is that right yes yep that was my profession so for 34 yeah. years I was a speech language pathologist I worked in an early childhood special education program here I'm in in Minnesota in the U.S. and so worked with as I call them tiny humans for about <laughs> 34 years and so um, that was my profession that was my passion I really just was keen on helping children and helping families navigate special needs and um, communication struggles. And so that was where I started my journey 
professionally was supporting and caring for parents and children. So why specifically speech pathology? How did you end up there? You know, that's kind of a funny, <laughs> it's kind of a strange story. Actually, in college, um, I was in a sorority. And so one of my sorority sisters said, you know, hey, I need someone to take this class with me next semester. It's an intro to communication disorders. And I was like, well, I need a science credit. Sure. Why not? Sure. And we got to the first class and she hated it. And she was like, I don't ever want, I, I'm dropping the class. I'm sorry. I told you to take it with me. You should drop it too. I'm like, no way. This is the bomb. <laughs> I had always wanted to be a, a pediatrician actually. And then I found this and it was like, this is great. It, it's the medical piece. It's the anatomy. It's the physiology. It's all the neurology, but it's also families and children, which is, I wanted to be a pediatrician. And so it was like it was all wrapped up neat and tied up and I didn't have to go to school for a thousand years and it was perfect. It was a wonderful career. Excellent. And amazing that you land in the space that you needed to be on the referral of a friend. Isn't it funny how the world works? <laughs> right. Yeah. Decades later, she ended up being a, a special ed teacher and I ended up being a speech pathologist. But You're right. So she was still heading down that same path. And do right. you think that like for you, you, you naturally, the speech pathology obviously came about a little bit randomly, but you had that idea from a young age that you wanted to be uh, caring for people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, from the time I was a little kid, I was, I was fascinated with um, medical shows, medical dramas, you know, Marcus Welby, these were shows, I don't know if they had them in Australia, but Marcus Welby in medical center and all those shows that had doctors. I loved the pace. I liked the, the, um, the science piece of it. I like the interaction and the, and the, the fast moving and handling emergencies and jumping in and rescuing and <laughs> all those things. So hence, hence my journey into caregiving. <laughs> yeah. And on, on the journey, like, so you've, you can identify that now, have you dug deep enough to, to look at, well, where did that sort of interest and desire come from? I don't know. I was sick a lot as a little kid. I had a lot of like tonsillitis and things like that. So I was often home um, ill. <laughs> and so maybe maybe it stemmed from that. I don't really know. I remember having my tonsils out at, you know, nine and being in the hospital and just kind of being fascinated by the whole process. Yeah, well, I'd, I'd say that was probably quite a yeah, profound experience for you that had that sort of impact. And it's interesting when we when we get to how you ended back in that in the space where you had to then step away and receive care, how like you mentioned before, coming full circle, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah. So your journey takes you to being a speech pathology pathologist. Mm -hmm. And then did the your accident come then or was there already a change of direction no, um, actually, so I was a speech pathologist and um, I'm the mother of four children, three living, one deceased. Um, and our our second child passed away. Um, and that was, she would be turning 26 coming up in January. So a long time ago. Yeah. But um, so she had a chromosomal abnormality. We had her for 18 hours and, and that was it. And then the next year I was within a couple months, I was pregnant again. 
And the next year we had our son, Isaac, um, and Isaac was born healthy, you know, typical, normal baby. Um, he was 10 weeks old and something changed. He went to daycare in the morning and I called to check on him because I had just gone back to work and I was breastfeeding. I was like, well, when did he eat last? I was trying to, you know, coordinate all those things. And, and the daycare provider, she's called, she said, you know, he's just kind of lethargic. He hasn't really eaten. And I said, you know what? I'm a block away. I'm just going to stop in. Stopped in. He was um, gray. He was um, kind of wheezy. And so I called my husband and I said, you know, something's wrong with Isaac. And he's like, you know what? I'm a block away, which <laughs> divine intervention. I, I don't know how we both ended up being right there and that close. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, he came and we jumped. I jumped in the car with the baby and he called, you know, on the cell phone and said, this is where I'm driving. This is the vehicle I'm driving. <laughs> if you see me, don't stop me. He called 911 and told them that, like, I'm on the way to the hospital. Yeah, right. um, and we were off to the races. So was the experience with your second child, was that part of, you think, what was pushing you forward or was it a gut instinct that had you going, actually, I'm going to go there because that just, it seems like the right thing to do. You know, I, I don't know if it was just the fear of, of having lost a child um, or, but yeah, it was just, I believe that probably, honestly, I sort of think that our, our daughter was watching out for us, the daughter we lost. I think she was, you know, overseeing, <clears throat> excuse me, um, overseeing that journey for us. I think that she had some ability to, to, you know, point us in the right direction. Oh, tingles all over. Um, <laughs> that would be a yes. Um, I'm a big believer in, in that being the case. And, and why would we not want to believe that those people that have left us are there with us now? Right. And then when we have experiences that confirm that, like the chat we had in your backyard when we were talking about your daughter and, and every time she came up, the wind chimes went off and it's mm -hmm. like, okay, well, is. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was like, hi, <laughs> how you doing? Glad you're here. Yeah. Glad you joined yeah. us. Yeah. Yeah. So you said 18, 18 hours. So were you in shock or did you have time to think about, like they'd obviously described, well, when did you know about the abnormalities? Did uh, yeah, you know not, not long enough beforehand. Um, we found out, I went into the hospital. My blood pressure was kind of funky. She was due in February of yeah. 1995. And I went to the hospital towards the end of December. My blood pressure was up. And then on New Year's Eve, it was so high that they were like, you know what? We want to put you in the hospital. We're going to just kind of monitor you because... We're concerned about your blood pressure while I was there. Um, they did an ultrasound that was, you know, long ago, <laughs> they didn't have all the fancy four dimensional ultrasounds, but um, they did an ultrasound and then uh, they came in and they said, you know, we see that there are some abnormalities. It looks like the baby has a cleft lip and palate um, looks like possible heart defects. And wow. Yeah, so I was 33 weeks along, so almost full term. 
And it was like, okay. And at that point in time, I mean, of course it was devastating, but I'm sort of like the, okay, this is really hard to hear. But I also knew enough about children being born early and all of the um, surgeries and all those things that they could do. So I was thinking, okay, well, they'll just fix those things. Yeah. You know, and it was funny because prior to that time, I had always worried like, oh, you know, if I have a child with a cleft lip and palate, I just know as a speech pathologist, there's a lot of challenges. There's feeding issues and there's speech and language issues and, you know, surgeries and things like that. So it was always like, oh, gosh, I hope that doesn't happen to me. Um, in retrospect, you know, some of those things that you you wish for don't quite transpire in the way in the way that you want them to. But um mm. Yeah, so I went home. They went home the next day on New Year's Day. And then on the 3rd of January, we went in to um, see the specialists nearby in Minneapolis, which is larger than <clears throat> where I live in St. Cloud. Um, and they said, you know, what we see are, you know, they labeled all these things that they saw that were wrong and that that looks like that's either um, a trisomy 13 or a trisomy 18 and neither is compatible with life. Wow. So. So within four days, I went from thinking I was, you know, within seven weeks of delivering a baby. Mm. So how, what help did you get after that? Because like, I mean, I'm sure there's so, because it would have been a massive shock trying to describe even what that was like would be really challenging particularly in this space. Right. I'm, I'm curious to know because given that like you knew care was a really important thing because you'd been somewhere in that space, what mm -hmm. care was provided and did you seek out anything else to do? You know, there, you know, the nurses and the doctors were wonderful. I ended up going into labor while I was there being monitored after an amnio. So mm. couldn't have been again, divine intervention. I was there. I was at the hospital. My blood pressure was sky high. They wanted me to be hospitalized and I went into labor and so delivered and had her with us for, like I said, 18 hours and got to hold her and know her. And, um, and then after I went home, there really wasn't much in the way of, of support. I mean, I tried a support group, but it just didn't feel right for me. Um, I think just, I don't know. I think everybody processes things differently and everybody, you know, some people that's a great fit for them for the, for me at the particular time, it just, it didn't feel right. And there were people who had, you know, lost babies longer ago than I had. And, and I just, it just didn't feel like a space for me. So I went back to work about 10 days after she was born and passed away. Wow. Bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> Bad idea. Yeah. Um, ended up having a lot of trauma uh, responses to my job because I worked in an evaluation team. Um, yeah. So trying to find, trying to find um, a, a reason or understanding of how my child could be gone when other people's children were, were still there. It was, so I took, went home again, <laughs> took about a month off and just sort of uh, licked my wounds. And then shortly thereafter, I was pregnant again. So wow. I honestly, I don't know that I really processed it 
fully for a long, long time. Yeah, and, and like for those watching, you, I know that you've done a lot of work around this, so it's not just like this is like as raw as it, I mean, it's still obviously raw and painful because these things you wouldn't get over, right? Right. I, I am, I did want to ask, so in that 18 hours, did you have some moments of just like, just so much love and, and so much beauty of that whole experience? Yeah, I mean, honestly, <clears throat> one of the nurses who was there when I delivered came back that um, during the day and we had held her a bit and, and I was still, my blood pressure was really off. So I was having you know a hard time just physically myself, but she came back that night and sat with us and said, you know, have you gotten to do this? And have you gotten to do that? So, you know, we, we unwrapped her and she took extra pictures. And, and um, so we had a you know, some more connection with her. Um, and then I actually, um, this will take me a second. That's okay. <laughs> I actually held her as she left. Um, sometimes it gets me and sometimes it doesn't. Um, but yeah, so I mean, there were definitely moments. I mean, we, we got to explore, you know, like look at her little feet. And we have, of course, you know, handprints and footprints and a lock of her hair. And um, it was kind of strange. I, I wrote a journal while I was pregnant. Um, and telling her about, you know, telling my, you know, the baby about what her big sister um, was like, and that her big sister was waiting for her and all these different things. And it's, it was strange, because I look at it after the fact, and I actually kind of compiled it, and I call it letters to RC, because that was her name. Um, and so it, it's just strange that I that that was part of it. It's almost like there was somewhere in innately or somewhere in there was knowing that yeah, it was going to be different. Self self healing journey that you were already on from that from that stage. Mm -hmm. um, I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah, absolutely. I know, I know other people who have gone through similar circumstances will will take so much value from that. So I guess the the most logical question is: so at first you didn't get necessarily get the help that you needed. So right. What, what were, I mean, beyond what you've already discussed about the work, what were the repercussions ongoing and, and how have you been able to process to, to get to a point where you still raised three children and carried on with life? Right. Um, I'm a stubborn Norwegian, I think. <laughs> Maybe that's part of it. Um, but I have a very strong faith, and so that was, for me, really crucial in the journey. Um, was just knowing that some ways, you know, in the future, we will be together again. Um, and there's always a little piece of her, you know, with me. But I think, honestly, it, it just transferred so quickly into, oh, here's another pregnancy. And then Isaac was born. And then just 10 weeks later, we were launched into another intensely traumatic situation. Um, so I think it just sort of was like, <laughs> it just mushroomed and it was kind of like, okay, don't have time to deal with that anymore because now this is the next crisis. So up until that point, were you already in a space where you were doing all the caring, but not actually in it, like weren't receiving any help from anyone else? 
Yeah, I mean, I I tried a little bit of therapy, you know, here and there, but it just never really seemed to feel like a fit related to that particular situation. Um, so I think a lot of it was just, you know, I I cry alone a lot, honestly. And those experiences that you've been through where you, you've had to like manage that on your own, what does that help you to be able to do now and to be able to help others with now, given you've gone through that? I think um, I've become really adept at um, holding space for people and honoring their journey and, and allowing them to share things with me. I tend to be the person that people um, feel comfortable just kind of <laughs> giving, giving me their, their pain or sharing things with me that are difficult. Um, and I don't know if it's just because of something that they see in me or if it's uh, a, a sense of <laughs> that they know that somewhere in my, by knowing me that they know that my journey has been challenging. Um, but yeah, I tend to be the person that um, people sit to seek out when they're, when they're struggling. Um, it's, to me, it's the energy that you're putting out, right? You, you've known deep trauma. And so mm -hmm. you, you're able to show up for, for people in a way where no matter what experience they've had that, that you can hold that space. And I think mm -hmm. for anyone who's been through loss, that's, that's a lot of what drives them. Well, I mean, everyone's been a differing loss, but when it's this, mm -hmm. this sort of specific, it, it allows us to show up for those people going through similar things or even just show up in a way, well, if they are, then they do feel comfortable. It, it's a strange but beautiful thing that that actually unfolds like that in our life, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, um, it's the situation, it's like I said, I've said before, it's the club that nobody wants to join, you know, but, but once you're in it, you're in it and, and you are, you know, I've had different people say, well, my story was this, which isn't as bad as your story was. And I'm always like, you know what, this, it's not a, it's not a comparison. <laughs> it, it's not a, you win because your life was harder or, you know, because you can always find someone whose journey is more challenging than yours. Or it's about being there and, and honoring the fact that everybody struggles. We're all part of this common humanity and yeah. and life is life is hard for everybody at some stage of the game. So we need to be more cognizant of allowing people to to share that humanity. And I think you saw I wrote similar words yesterday, and so that often, that really spoke to me. Yeah. Well, as our friend uh, Dan talks about there's often a theme for the week and if and if it's showing up more than once or twice or three times then it seems to be the way that other people are experiencing that so I think it's a really important point that you raise is it, it's it's never about saying well there are other people worse off than me it's then we start understating our own experience and our own mm -hmm. struggles and like that might help you deal with it and process at the time but it right. actually doesn't help you to be able to address the root cause and right. You need to be able to just sit in that and go. Oh, I am not doing okay. 
Like I'll put my hand up. That that happens to me on a regular basis. What I now know differently is that I know the people in my world who I can reach out to for depending on the circumstance, who I know are going to be able to hold space like you described and be able to be there for me in a way that I will need. And that right. really is the important part. And I guess that's part of your journey to help other people. And that's what you do now, right? Being able to hold space for them. Absolutely. Absolutely. And having had those those circumstances and, the, and those journeys, while there's obviously days where I'm like, I would have really <laughs> rather opted out of some of these experiences. Yeah. But, but when you look at them as a whole and as part of your, you know, tapestry, I guess, um, they sometimes the most painful spots give you the brightest colors. Um, that sounds like a a quote that you need to put somewhere. That yeah, I think so too. <laughs> we, um, oh, amateur. I've got my phone not on silent. Sorry. Oh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you think working in television for 20 years, I would not So <laughs> the tapestry, and like that's what I've, I've talked about as well. I, I'd give anything to have my dad back. Mm-hmm. Would I have gone on the journey that I've been on? Well, you can't answer that question, but I appreciate the fact that I've been able to to then change because of those experiences. And right. like I said, you'd rather opt out, but we've been, <laughs> dealt, we've been dealt and it's how you then respond. So you went from having lost a child to then mm-hmm. having to deal with a child and care for a child with a pretty extreme disability. So tell me about how that all unfolded. Um, well, so RC, our daughter, um, was born January of 95. Isaac was born January of 96. So they're a year and 11 days apart. Um, so initially it was great. You know, I've got this new baby, he's doing well. And then he wasn't doing well. Um, <laughs> and then spent, you know, they airlifted him from our city and, and spent weeks in intensive care, those kinds of things. Um, and then, yeah, he has, I mean, he, what his needs are, he is, he's blind. He has cerebral palsy. Um, he has seizures and he has cognitive um, delays. And he's the brightest, most amazing. If, if you could just see love in a face okay i can't not show this picture <laughs> oh yes look at that shining look at those eyes i know yeah beautiful. It's, it's just like yeah so i mean of course obviously all my children are wonderful but yeah he's he is just light and love and joy and that doesn't mean life was <laughs> rosy posy and easy um dealing with all of those issues. Um, and I launched into <laughs> the Save Isaac um, <laughs> Club really intensely. And um, after having lost a child, having one that was going to have a lot of life challenges, I mean, at first it was like, okay, you know, anything above breathing is gravy. But I didn't let anybody help me. I was a woman on a mission and I was going to make sure that 
I did absolutely everything possible, you know, made sure that all of the things happened, all of the exercises, all of the therapies, all of the things. And really, I mean, he had services and therapies from school and, and medical, but I was, it was unhealthy. Looking at it now, I can look back and say it was an unhealthy level of intensity. Mm. Um, and I can't imagine the the pain that would have like driven you like to to be able to do that. I, the question that comes up to me is probably a little bit going back a bit. Was you mentioned you know you've got a child with a disability? How did you manage to juggle that with having two other children and to be able to share that love around in a way that you got that balance is like no one, none of us get it right. Yeah, right. <laughs> for, you, for you, that challenge would have been bigger than most because of those circumstances. You know, I think because our daughter is, our oldest daughter is four years older than Isaac. And then we have a son that's four, almost five years younger. So the, sp the spacing helped a bit. Yeah. Um, because the daughter, you know, the, the my oldest, she and she was a very um, she actually was like junior caretaker in training because she was, you know, doing all the things, making sure that he was, you know, Mama, Isaac needs this and Isaac needs that. And, you know, she was right there, <laughs> you know, doing all the things to it. Um, I ask her sometimes, I'm like, do you remember? Do you do you regret? Do you feel like you, you know, missed out on being a child because your life was different? But that's that's another whole show. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I think honestly, I I worry sometimes that I didn't do enough for my other children. They have assured me that they feel very loved and cared for. Um but yeah, it's hard. It's very hard to balance. It's hard to balance having three typical kids. Yeah. And then you add in, you know, two kids and a child with special needs. And I worked full time. And then later on in later years, I took care of my dad at the same time. So it was, um, it was a lot of juggling. It was a lot of juggling. It was a lot of, um, making sure everybody else was okay and not always realizing that I maybe wasn't. Yeah. I, I can tell you as a, a parent and I'm sure others will feel the same. There's still moments of feeling guilty about the things we got wrong and the things we didn't do and where we feel like we could have done a much better job. And I, I don't imagine that would change no matter the circumstances. And I think without, lowering the impact for you I, like, mm -hmm. back to what we talked about before none of us can look and say well well that's okay because i didn't do such a bad job compared to what <laughs> must right. have been. Still, we still have to own our stuff and be able to look at it through our own lens and what we've experienced so um yeah it's okay so you were already at that stage where you you weren't caring for yourself now this is amplified by the fact that you've been through these experiences was there any inkling that you would that you needed to change some things at that point or did that really not unfold until the accident it did not unfold and you know and so i really spent 
a lot of time and energy on caring, you know, from the time Isaac was born and he'll be 25 in January. So um, hard to believe it's amazing and wonderful, but hard to believe. Uh, but I just, I just really spent a lot of time um, enmeshed in all of those things related to Isaac. And then also, you know, monitoring and taking, you know, in all of the other activities and things my other kids were involved in and, you know, sports and music and theater and, you know, trying to juggle all the, all the balls and, you know, be a wife and a mom and a caregiver and a speech pathologist and a daughter. And it's a lot of parts. <laughs> A lot of moving parts. Yeah, absolutely. So then an accident comes. Yes. Yeah. Four and a half years ago now, um, I was driving between work sites and I was sitting at a stoplight. Um, this beautiful spring day, it was April, and sitting there and the next thing I knew, there was a thunderous crash, and I was the next thing I remember after that was um, the you know the OnStar lady or the when you have your car with satellite she was saying, "Are you okay? Are you okay? You've been in an accident?" And all I could say was, "I can't feel my arms. I can't feel my arms." Um, and there's still pieces that have not completely <laughs> come through the, the, um, situation, but, um, and then she said, what, what do you, what, you know, we've, do you need an ambulance? I'm like, and I just like, I can't feel my arm. So they, obviously they called an ambulance. Um, I, everything was, there was nothing. I just, I just remember sitting there and thinking, Honestly, my first thought was I can't feel my arms. And my second thing I told her was, I need you to let Isaac's, somebody needs to make sure Isaac's okay. Wow. So even at that moment, you're still thinking about someone else. Yeah. Because I knew, I knew that something, somebody had to watch him. And then the next thing was, please call my husband and tell him to come home. Was there after you've then passed those messages on, was there any panic that hit then thinking about, I can't move my arms? Oh yeah. <laughs> and then, yeah. The, and, and, um, because I, at first I thought, okay, like, honestly, my biggest concern initially was what, <laughs> what is going to happen to Isaac? If I'm, if I'm broken, who's going to take care of him. And it's not that his dad couldn't, or there weren't people who, but you know, that's just has always been the forefront of my mind is to make sure that he's okay. And I honestly, I think a lot of it is just because like not having, I know the loss of not having the child there. And so it was like, I've just got to make sure he's okay. Um, there's nothing quite so terrifying as, having paramedics come and watching them strap you onto a backboard and your arm flops to the side and you can watch your arm move, but you have no sense that it's part of your body. And then to be strapped onto a backboard, you know, with your arms strapped down again, you can't feel them, but you know, you're strapped down. Um, 
I was terrified. I was really terrified. Yeah, a bit. And so, uh, what what happens then when you go through that is that the people who are caring for you, are, they'd be well aware that you're terrified. Is there? Do you getting? Are you getting reassurance? Are you getting? Um, what, what, they were uh, great. They were um, the paramedics were wonderful. I mean, they were like very you know, conscientious and telling me, okay, this is, this is what we're going to do. This is what's going to happen next. Um, we're going to get you checked out. I mean, very, very calm, wonderful people. I wish I knew who they were. I wish I knew who they were. Cause I'd love to, um, um, reach out now that it's been, you know, four and a half years. But one thing that was interesting while I was sitting in my car, a woman came from, I, I guess a nearby house. I don't know if she heard the crash or whatever, but she came in and she said to me, she's like, it's okay. I'm praying for you. It's going to be okay. And um, do you need a blanket? Do you like, and she's like, I just live over here in the greenhouse. And I don't know why I remember that when I don't remember other parts of it, but, and she just, just like, you know, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And I just, I don't know. Another person that was just sent to <laughs> to be messenger of hope, I guess. When we spend a lot of our life like looking at problems with humanity, mm-hmm. but when you talk about these stories and you hear about people going through challenges, like like your faith gets restored immediately. But this is what Absolutely. we do for each other when in the toughest times, right? Right. Like, we step forward and and like like we would hope that someone else would do for us if it happened out the front of our place right how like yes even though that's what people do like how blessed are you to have those experiences and particularly obviously quite profound because for the first time in your life that you can consciously remember you're actually receiving care from others Mm. and well even through that time I don't know if you're conscious of this at the time, but now thinking about it, like, yeah, how, how amazing that you were able to receive that. Right. And that, and that the people who are, I mean, beyond the people that are trained to deal with those situations, the emergency personnel, the, the emergency room doctors, you know, nurses, everybody, those kinds of things. Um, But just the random, you know, stranger who would take the time to come over and, and to, offer compassion it's really quite it's really quite startling and quite amazing that 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 happened honestly yeah so then you start the long road to recovery and it has been a long road (laughs) it has been a long long road um so obviously i can now move my hands and, and the rest of me, um, I had to um, have a traumatic brain injury. So I just learned in the probably the last maybe year <laughs> to actually say I have a brain injury and not I had one because I was just like, yep, I had a brain, I had a brain injury, was paralyzed, but I'm all good now. <laughs> like, okay, let's maybe process that and unwrap that a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, I'm, I'm, obviously an optimistic person but sometimes it's okay to to find the space to just go okay like it's okay to not be okay and that's that's been a big part of my journey is to be able to say you know i don't have to be 
okay. And I don't have to be all things to all people. I think that's one of the things that I find with my coaching is so helpful to be able to say, you know what, it is, there's no shame in not being okay. Yeah. And my experience, and I'm sure others, if you don't admit it, that you're not okay, then the world will show you more examples of you needing to get to that. <laughs> and they will yes. come thicker and faster and, and more full on. A, uh, a very good friend of mine talks about uh, the feather, the brick and the truck. And if you don't listen to the feather, then you'll get a brick. It's a bit harder and, and hurts more. And if you don't listen to the brick, then the, the truck comes. Right. And, and I literally got the truck, literally. Yeah. So, um, but have spent the last four and a half years, um, I had to learn, obviously, to walk again. Um, I had to learn to read. I knew that there were letters on a page, but I couldn't decode them. I couldn't, um, necess- I couldn't string them together. It just, initially, it was just looked like little bumps of ink, and I couldn't figure them out at all. Um, so... Lots of physical therapy, um, occupational therapy. I've done uh, uh, EMDR, if you're familiar with EMDR. It's a type of psychotherapy for trauma. Um, I've done vision therapy. I had to do sound generators because I couldn't tolerate noise, which isn't a very good thing for a speech language pathologist in the classroom (laughs) to not be able to tolerate noise of tiny humans because they're pretty loud. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's it's been it's been a long journey. It's been a lot of um, a lot of time and <laughs> trauma and drama. Um, and then in the midst of that, um, my marriage has dissolved. Not because of that per se, but you know we've had a lot of trauma in our life and. Um, so that's been uh, after 35 years of, of marriage has been a challenge. Also, um, I'm grateful that my husband and I, or ex eventual ex husband, are 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 very um, good friends, and we care about each other. And um, yeah, so that's that is the plus side of having lived through a lot of trauma together is that you can say, you know what, in, in consequence to all of these other things, um, yeah. we're not going to let the respect and the, and the love that we have for each other just, you know, drop away. So that's a plus. Yeah. Wow. Um, and to be able to look at it that way as well. Yeah. It's when you've been through so many of those things together. Um, right. It almost becomes easy. Yeah. I mean, I think, We've just had so many challenges that we've weathered together. I can't, you know, imagine not having a, a ongoing relationship where you care about one another and you, you know, honor the fact of <clears throat> who you were to each other through the journey. Yeah. Powerful. So, so you're doing a lot of, physical therapy and I know a lot of some of those things are were mental that you mentioned as well so what yeah. about emotional work around the grief that like because this is grief on grief on grief right this is all starting to bank up now yeah um I like I said I <clears throat> you know I'd done counseling periodically throughout um 
and so did work through a lot of that um, and then ended up in a um, had PTSD really kind of knock me upside the head about a year actually almost two years ago now it's when I it's like all of a sudden what happened is I needed to have my spine fused um, which was a repercussion of the accident so I needed to have a spinal fusion on my neck um, and then when that happened I think it was finally pausing and having to realize that I couldn't do things again because <laughs> even while I had a caregiver I mean I thought about that and that's when when the whole piece of of rise up came to me was about three months after my accident <clears throat> I had a caregiver and I was thinking you know First of all, what if I can't go back to being a speech pathologist? You know, how would I deal with that emotionally? I mean, that's been my career and my passion. Um, and I sorry, I jumped topics here for a little bit, didn't I? I <laughs> but no, okay. um, but uh, the the therapy, you know, lent itself to to that too. But what happened is I woke up in the middle of the night. Again, I get these lightning bolts from like. Apparently, it takes a few trucks, different kinds of trucks. <laughs> but the uh, I woke up in the middle of the night about three months after my accident, and the words rise up were just like in my head, rise up, rise up, rise up. And I'm thinking, I don't know what this means, but all of a sudden, I grabbed my phone, and I got out of bed, and I was sitting, and I just started typing on my phone, like, <clears throat> Rise up, rise up exists to refresh, inspire, support, empower, uplift, and prepare caregivers for their caregiving journey. And I was like, okay, that seems pretty clear <laughs> for the middle of the night, yeah. <laughs> you know, three months post accident. I'm like, hmm, what do you suppose that means? Well, I tuck it in. It's, I literally still have the note on my phone. Um, and I just started thinking, well, maybe maybe that's what I'm supposed to do. Maybe I'm supposed to heal. And then that's what I'm supposed to do. And that's what I did. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I just was like, it became clear to me because I would think about the fact when my caregiver was coming to the house, what do I want my caregiver to arrive as? Do I want her to arrive as worn out, you know, exhausted, cranky, tired, stressed out and irritated, or do I want my caregiver to come to the house and be light and friendly and patient and loving and caring? Well, obviously, but you don't have that perspective. And then I was like, oh my gosh, this is it. This is the light bulb moment. I didn't do any of those things. I didn't do any of those. I was still hopefully light and fun and patient, but I never, ever paused to take care of myself. And it was taking and having a caregiver myself that made me realize how important all of the caregiving I did was. And not just all the caregiving that I did, but all the caregiving that people do every single day. And it blew my mind. It, yeah. And I just was like, okay, 
this is it. This is what I need to do. I need to be out there. I need to support caregivers, whether it's speaking, whether it's consulting, whether it's just reaching out to a person on the street that I see struggling. Like, I need to help caregivers. Amazing. So for those people who are watching who are caregivers, what's a, a practical tip you can give them to make sure that they are prioritizing their self-care? Well, first of all, take a moment to pause. I like to say practice the pause. Yeah. Because it doesn't just come as much as we think, oh, yeah, I, I, you know, I did that. I sat down, whatever. It's more about intentionality. And they don't have to be big things, but they do need to be intentional. Because otherwise, quite honestly, you can get through, you get to the end of the day and you realize like, gosh, did I eat today? Did I sit down? Did I take a break? Did I do anything that remotely resembled something for me? Even if it's sitting down with a cup of coffee or a cup of tea, you know, read one page in a book, maybe read a paragraph, <laughs> maybe just take five or 10 deep breaths. Yeah. And that's the things that I like to share with people because otherwise you get caught up in this whole idea that caregiving has to be this or self-care has to be this huge activity. And when you're in the trenches, quite honestly, when you're actually doing the day-to-day -day work of being a caregiver, you don't have the luxury of maybe even leaving the person you're taking care of. Yeah. So it's about being present and being mindful and being intentional in the little spaces you can offer yourself and giving yourself some grace. Fantastic. So how, how do you help people? Because I think what you said there, it is important to be intentional. Mm -hmm. and it is important to actually, like it's okay to have reminders. So how do you help people who are struggling to make time for that pause and that. Get a timer on your phone, right? Yeah. Yeah. So set a timer on your phone, you know, every 60 minutes, every 45 minutes, set a timer on your phone. And when that timer goes off, take a couple of deep breaths, you know, just sit, put your hands up, shut your eyes. It's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. Breath is life. It's That's a simple tip right there. You know, just we set our alarms for everything else. We set our appointments for all the things we prioritize. You know, we wouldn't want to, we wouldn't put skip putting an appointment in if we were going to go to the doctor, if we were going to, you know, have anything scheduled. We schedule everything in. We schedule our lives so full yeah. that there isn't a moment but you have to schedule in those breaks. You have to schedule them in. And the more you schedule in the little breaks, then pretty soon you're like, oh, hey, I'm going to be pretty fancy today. I'm going to take two minutes instead of two seconds. And then maybe you can build that practice into like, hey, I'm going to take two minutes three times a day. Maybe I'm going to take three minutes five times a day. Pretty soon you've built in a whole half an hour. It's amazing. Yeah. You know, fits and starts. Fits and starts. 
Yeah, you, you mentioned the reading that people talk about building a reading habit. You don't build a, a half an hour a day reading habit by trying to start with half an hour. You start by promising to yourself that you'll read one page or if it is the case, one paragraph. Right. Um, having, having that that thing that brings you back to present moment, I think, is so important. It's interesting. I listen to a lot of um, podcasts and mm-hmm. a few of them tend to be sport-related and one of them particularly is about um, – <laughs> It's it's a cricketer interviewing mostly other cricketers, and for the eastern, uh, sorry for the <laughs> Europe uh, US audience, uh, you might have to look that one up if you're not familiar yep. with cricket. But, uh, <laughs> um, but the the same like doesn't matter if it's baseball or whatever. The same thing was they all have the similar thing, and it's just watch the ball, and it's so simple. There's all these technicalities and all these different things, but that's the trick <laughs> to watch, watch the ball. And I was thinking. Okay, so what what would it be for me? Because during the day, watch the ball, I don't know, is that going to take me back to what I need to be doing? But I think it's what you talked about, it's it's breathing. And for all of us just to have that as a reminder, because when we get in these tense situations and these different challenges, what do we do? We hold. Yeah, and, and we tighten up and our yeah. shoulders come up and pretty yeah. soon we're just a big old knot. And yeah. it, it's one of the most simple things and it's generally what I start with when I talk with people is like, first thing we're going to do is we're going to get you to breathe and we're going to do a little bit of guided meditation. We're going to learn about like, Oh, where do I feel this stress? Am I feeling it in my neck? Am I feeling it in my shoulders? People are so out of touch with their own physical being because we go and go and go and go and go that even the sense of like, okay, if I'm sitting here, can I, am I noticing, you know, okay. Like I'm noticing, oh, my, my back is feels like this. Well, okay. Well just being um, in your skin. As you've already highlighted a number of times, the, the human body is amazing at how it's able to heal itself. Right. One of the most powerful. <laughs> well, you described all those things. And yes, we get medical attention and different help. But ultimately, is it how amazing is it that the body regenerates? Like phenomenal. And one of the most powerful ways it does that is through breath. Mm-hmm. And we we take it for granted. And, it, and again, it's okay to be intentional about that. That does right. not make you less a person or like, like, you know, you go through those circumstances in any relationship where you're like, well, actually, I don't always think of that, even though maybe the other person's going, what do you mean you don't think of that? It's like, well, but that's not how I operate. So for me, I'm always on it, people, please just write it down because, because then it's there and remember, but some, because sometimes I'm not being present and the mm-hmm. words come in and go straight out the other side and it's okay for us to be well no this is how I need to do it and breath is no different right yeah and I've had to do those kinds of things the way I operate now and now now that I can finally acknowledge that I do still currently have a brain injury and my brain functions differently than it did before like I'll say to people you know what if I have and I was the master of carry on four to five different conversations, have 10 topics going at one time. It was just my thing. Um, And now I'm like, okay, if I have two or three people who are all talking to me at one time or in the same room, I'm like, I'm like, you just need to stop for a minute because either I am going to get none of this 
Or the other thing, maybe I just may possibly just start to cry. And it's not because I'm sad. It's not because I'm upset. It's just that my brain goes overwhelmed. So these tools now have honestly become my lifeline. It's amazing, isn't it? Like your brain hasn't regenerated to the point where you can go back to how it was, but it's still like it just fascinates me that we build these new neural pathways to right? be able to do the things before that we took for granted, which the brain damage is not allowing us to do, and it and it builds new pathways to do something anyway. Like how phenomenal it's, is that? We are fearfully and wonderfully made, aren't we? <laughs> um, the other thing is that you were talking about there is that what you've just described there is that through the process of you going through the the different challenges and, and the healing you've had to build in new boundaries i had no boundaries ian <laughs> i literally did not have a no i did not have a stop i did not have a i don't think so if you wanted something done ask me because guess what i will say yes so boundaries have been huge. And that's one of the other things that I now really like working with other people on because I'm like, you know what? By not setting boundaries, you think you're going to make other people be upset. But really, by not setting boundaries, the only person you're really hurting is yourself. Yeah. And and that's true for so many different parts mm-hmm. of your life. Actually, being a uh, recovering people pleaser is that when you – try to please every person which is what a lot of carers do Mm -hmm. you end up not really keeping any of them happy and least of all yourself and (laughs) yeah and there's no blue ribbon at the end for being the most exhausted and the most worn out and the hardest worker and the you know nobody pats you on the back and goes great job on that burnout nice work (laughs) <laughs> like, why didn't you say something? Right? <laughs> uh, it's amazing. We, we, uh, because we are capable of so much, we think we have to be capable of everything. Mm-hmm. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. <laughs> exactly. Um, I like uh, the idea that when someone asks you something, the 24-hour rule, and just say, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll come back to you because – particularly if you are someone who is a, you know, yesing to everything. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and you know, okay, well, let's have a look at what this will mean for me and, and my world. What difference will it make in the world when the caregivers of the world who do such incredible work are able to allow themselves to receive unconditionally the care that they require as well? That just gives me a really beautiful picture, first of all. You know, if you can learn to let go and accept the fact that you are human and you need to do the things that humans need to do, which is breathe and sleep and eat. I mean, we're talking basic human needs. If you can just allow yourself the sense of being worth it and being enough and being accepting of the fact that you were not designed to go 180 miles an hour. That is not, that is not what we were designed for. 
And if people could just take the moment to just practice that pause, to find that space for grace, to allow themselves to know that they have more to give if they take the chance to stop and pause, it's going to be a beautiful world. Absolutely. What a great way for us to to finish and a note to finish on Melody because I think that's the thing that we can lose sight of is that we, we go about our day trying to please other people or make, you know, fulfill certain requirements. And ultimately when we can prioritize our own self-care, then we're actually able to do a far better job of all the things we really want to do anyway. Absolutely. Fantastic. Melody, thank you so much. Thank you so much. This was lovely. You're welcome. And I appreciate it. I appreciate you and, and thank you. You bet. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Grief Code podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please share it with a friend or family member that you know would benefit from hearing it too. If you are truly ready to heal your unresolved or unknown grief, let's chat. Email me at info at ianhawkinscoaching.com. You can also stay connected with me by joining the Grief Code community at ianhawkinscoaching.com forward slash the grief code. And remember, so that I can help even more people to heal, please subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform.